You are listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, your joyologist, Trisha Huffman. What does claim it mean? Well, I feel like in my life, I've learned, seen from my own experience and others that really it's up to us to claim it for ourselves, to claim our joy, to claim our value, to claim our worth, to claim our dreams, to claim our enoughness. That as much as other people might be giving it to us, telling it to us, no matter what we have, what dreams we've accomplished, that if we're not really feeling the things ourselves and claiming them for ourselves, we really can't feel it. So this is going to be conversations where we talk about how people have lived their lives, made things happen, and what they are claiming for themselves. In this first episode, we talk with a longtime friend, boss, client of mine, Jason Mraz. Yep, that one, the Grammy Award winning singer-songwriter Jason Mraz. We talk about so many things. Uh, We split it into two episodes. In this first one, we talk about how he was really intentional in seeing that he can make money, make a career out of playing music, and how he did that and made it happen. We talk about when he saw that he really wanted to start taking better care of himself and what that looked like. We talk about his motto of being a beginner and why he has that as a tattoo. We talk about so much, so let's just get right into the episode. Okay. Check. Good call. I am number, you're one. I'm three. Number one. Yeah. Looking good. Even if I'm loud, it still doesn't really get to the peak level, which is nice. Yeah. But most of the time, I'm pretty quiet. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking there's not going to be, hopefully, many opportunities where you're going to be getting to the peak level. You never know. There is. But you get to the peak level. You have that. Why don't you test your peak level out? This is true, because it could just be with the... Give it a, (laughs) give it one of those. (laughs) I think we'll be okay. You can always put it through a compressor limiter later. There, and there's apparently some internal ones. Okay. We all have a lot of internal things. We're all, we're here today to actually talk about our internal limiters, aren't we? We are so here to talk about our internal limiters. So uh, before we begin, I'd just like to address that you did pull off the glossy screen protector from your recording device and it is official. You have now entered podcast season. It's official. And I loved that moment. I looked at him and I was like, ripped it off with intention. Like this, what did I say? This is mine now. I, I don't know what I said. I was like, it's official. It's official. <laughs> Can't send it back. Yeah. I'm committed to this new thing I'm doing that I don't know what I'm doing. This, I'm keeping this gadget. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but it feels good. Yeah, you're doing great. I'm loving it. And that's a part of also what these conversations are about talking about why and how you started things and why and how you keep going. Because what I've mentioned to you before, which I'm going to be talking about in one of my I Call Bullshit videos, is that about the quote. How you do anything. Is that one? No, you changed it on me. Not that one. The choose. No, we talked about that another one first. Choose job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Oh, okay. Right. So talking about, hey. Sure. I do also call bullshit on that. It's a beautiful thought. Yeah. But there's always going to be aspects of your dream, amazing, most amazing life job that are going to feel like work. Oh, yeah. And like, even if you're doing what you so love, you're not always going to be like jumping out of bed. Exactly. (laughs) Life's awesome. Yeah. So that's why I'm here to talk to you. Cool. You want to start with that? (laughs) Because 
Why not? We're there. Sure. Let's go ahead and start with that. What do you think about that quote and what I say? Well, I love that quote. My dad told me that when I was in high school working next to him at a fence company. He's like, son, do something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. I mean, it was cliche right out of Parenting 101. And we were digging holes. I was cleaning up a job site. And my dad knew I was good at singing and loved to do it. And so I did it. He gave me permission to just go and do that. And that felt great. And there's been hundreds of times where I was like, oh, man, I didn't think this was going to be a real job. I can't believe this is a job. Um, so going on what you're saying, do something you love, you never work a day in your life. It's quite the opposite. Living your dream is hard work. But it's very rewarding because the effort is the gift. The effort is the reward. The doing of your dream, the being your dream is the reward. It's not someday when my bank account has this in it or someday when I have this many trophies or great reviews. No, the whole point was you selected something that was your favorite thing and you chose to do it daily to make ends meet. And it's a blast. But yeah, it's also scary because there's no one else out there to sort of base it on, base on the how-to. You know, there's people in your field, but no one's done it like you. No one has your exact same resources. No one has your exact same energy level, uh, sleep patterns, diet, body type, vocal range, interests. I mean, there are so many details that make yours uniquely you. So there's, there's really no one else you can compare yourself to. So sometimes you feel very alone and lost mm. in your field. Because you're like, oh my gosh, I chose my favorite thing to be my job. And, mm. and how do I do that? Where is my value and where are my strengths? How am I going to cut through in this entrepreneurial market of life or the capitalist life that we live in the Western world? You know, how are all these crafts and talents that I've chosen going to help me make my ends meet? So, yeah, it becomes very, very uh, work ish yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. And when you were first starting to go down that talk about this, and, you know, after your dad and that quote, and you were like, wow, this is my job, or like, this is work. I wasn't sure if you were saying like, wow, this is what I get to do. This is my job, which is also probably amazing. And that has come up so many times. But also, I think you might have ended, what it turned into is that you're like, oh, I chose to do this thing that I love. And this is a job that I should show up for every day. <sighs> and I love it. But it is a job. Yeah. Well. I think you, you summed it up right there when you say a uh, job. We are all forced to work. Mm -hmm. We wake up in a capitalist society where money equals survival. And we have to do something to participate in order to get the basic needs, food, water, shelter. Yeah. So no matter what we do, it's going to cause suffering. And choosing something you love is is amazing because it will make the job easier but it is still a job yeah. it is still competitive and not just competitive with the world it's competitive with yourself and how you view your work and the value of your work or where you think you're supposed to be at a certain time yeah and that's what i you know and when i will go into that quote in and in that video and what i talk to clients and stuff about is that yes 
that quote I call bullshit on, but also with the point of, no, you do have to do something you love because it is going to be work and show up as a job some days and not like, this is this amazing thing I get to do, but like, oh, I got to get my butt out of bed and do this. And so you have to then have passion about something because then what can pull your ass out of bed is that passion of, yeah. wait, why do I do this? If you're like, oh, I don't really want to do that interview mm-hmm. today. or I don't want to, you know, I love performing, but I just wish I could stay in bed today yeah. and write a song. I don't want to get on stage. But however, it might show up for you in your life that yeah. it, Yes and no to that quote, but like, yes, it is true that you got to find whatever your job is and it doesn't have to be some big flashy thing or anything that whatever Mm -hmm. your work is to remember why you're doing it. And also how you touched on like, we all have to have a job. Mm -hmm. That made me remember with my daughter, with Zia and, you know, me being like, I mommy has to go to work because I was around a lot more. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to be. And now I'm like more back to work. Uh So she's having babysitter stuff. Mommy has to go to work because mommy helps people. And that's what I'll say in different ways. And what I'm telling her about any type of job, you know, we're at a restaurant. Well, who's that person? Well, that's our waitress. She helps us get our food. So what I've told her about jobs is that everybody, when you get older, you get a job, like everybody has to choose a different way to help people. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like, that's what we're all doing. Like, you know, even though we're helping ourselves and we need money to survive and that, that we're all, if you're a cashier somewhere, you're helping people. Yeah. That we're all doing something that is helping other people. And so like, even if that's, you're like pulling your ass out of bed in the morning, like, why am I doing this? People need me to be there. I feel good when I'm of service. I love that. Yes. We all need a job because in some ways it helps you. It helps society work. I like that. That is the positive look at socialism and democracy working. Like there's going to be different places for everybody and you're not always going to love your job, but they all will be helping. You know, if you work at a grocery store, you're helping the grocer, you're helping the farmer, you're helping the produce guy, you're helping the mom who's in there buying the groceries. Yes. There are so many pieces that are constantly moving that I think that's a really smart way of looking at life. Yeah, we're all here to help. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And so that to not feel like also it's like you don't also have to like make a career out of what your passion is that be that cashier, be the waitress. That is a necessary thing. And then maybe you choose to do what your passion is at home, because also sometimes when you choose to make your passion be your job, then you end up hating that. passion. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, also that hand. OK, so let's get back to your dad giving you right. that piece of advice you wanted to sing and make music. Yep. He gave you that, which then drove home like, OK, I have permission. Yep. I have permission to chase my passion and let my passion be my career. And how old were, do you feel like you were when you had that sort of idea? I do really want this. And not even like, I'm sure you had it maybe younger, but maybe when you're like, it's possible for me to make money, like that this can be the thing that makes me money, making uh, music or performing. So, so the, the seed was probably around 12 or 13. And that's when you don't even think about the money. You just think, yeah, I'm going to be famous or something like that. The making money part, when I was around 18, I started pursuing music through the field of musical theater where the main gig would be auditioning for work. I was like, wow, this is going to suck because I'm just going to be competing for a chance to sing. 
So I started to fine tune that competition and say, well, I'm just going to, if I do my own thing, I could do it on a street corner, I could do it in the park and do it in my apartment. Then I'm really not competing with anyone. I'm just being me and I get to enjoy my passion and maybe I'll figure out a way to trade that for my basic needs, right? Because I knew I was getting a response out of people. So when I was 18, I started to make what I thought were small, realistic goals, smarter decisions. I took a few part-time jobs that I knew would still, that would be fun to work, but still give me energy when I got home to play my guitar and write songs and dream and know that I was moving the ball down the field. Even though I was a janitor at elementary school, even though I was selling cigarettes at a tobacco shop, I knew those weren't my careers, but they were fun jobs because they were environments that I liked And at night, I still had energy and driven to write songs and be creative. Do you think back then that, did you have that insight? Or now looking back, do you see, oh, I had these jobs that left me still energy? Or did you leave other jobs because you're like, this is draining? I had that insight. Yeah. So I was living in New York City, working at Barnes & Noble, playing guitar, thinking that, uh, not playing guitar at Barnes & Noble, but (laughs) working on my music. And I realized New York is such a distraction. It is so expensive. And there are so many distractions here, just in people, drugs, expenses. So I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to Virginia where living is affordable and I'm going to get jobs that don't drain me, that I don't, that, that have cool bosses or I get to be my own boss. I'll figure it out so that I can have the time to build this music catalog. So yeah, it was a conscious decision, conscious effort. That's amazing. And while I was working at the tobacco shop, So serendipitously, tobacco was starting to get sort of pushed out of society, like no smoking. It was kind of starting to get gross. People were advertising that it was bad for you. So we had very few customers at the tobacco shop, which was great. So I could take my guitar to work. And we also had the internet at the the tobacco shop and cable TV and unlimited (laughs) Coca-Cola. (laughs) So I was working double shifts and I was happy to do it. And I was smoking cigarettes, but I didn't care. Whatever, I was 19, 20, 21 years old, three, three years that I worked there. And, and I got to listen to Nina Simone and Bob Dylan and Grateful Dead and Neil Young and albums that I just had never spent time just listening to, but working at a tobacco shop where you can't leave, where you're sitting in there all by yourself, smoking, put on Nina Simone and really go deep, you know, put on jazz and put on Bob Dylan and really listen to what you think he's saying. And so that was very, very, very important time for me. Uh, how did I get on this? I'm, I'm stuck in the tobacco shop right now because I loved it, but it was a conscious decision. I know this is not going to be my career. I'm not going to be here forever, but it's a cool environment that yeah. still gives me joy and energy. Oh, so while I was working there, there would be these guys that came in for lunch break. And then after work, they would smoke cigars and they would watch money talk or whatever (laughs) these news shows are that inform you about investing and about business. So I started listening to learning about Roth IRAs and how (laughs) you can invest and get taxed putting it in so that down the road, when you take your money out, you don't get taxed on the way out. I mean, a 20 year old kid. I love that you like, I remember like that cigar shop was. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to, I took notes. I'm like, one of these days I'm going to make money and I'm going to need to protect it and I'm going to need to invest it well. And so this odd (laughs) job that I had at this tobacco shop And then what really put me over the top was this guy would come in who was a taper 
And he would go to concerts. Oh, a taper. I was like, what's a taper? Okay. A taper. Yeah. He would go to concerts and tape concerts. He'd wear this funky hat with microphones in the brim and he'd run the wires behind his ears down his shirt and he had like a fanny pack type of thing with dat tape machines. Wait, did he come into the cigar shop like that? or He showed me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had it. But then he would also give me cassette tapes, like stacks of them. Here's... Agents of Good Roots with Mo. Here's Dave Matthews Band. Here's Bob Dylan. Here's all kinds of shows. See, so this guy would go to shows and stereo record yeah. them with his funky hat. And then he would give you... And he would give me the tapes. So now I was getting this cool music, but what he also gave me was information on the music industry. I loved Dave Matthews, right? And he started explaining to me, oh yeah, Dave is a bartender at this place called Tracks. And a lot of the jazz musicians that come through there, they've gotten to know each other and they would jam and they would play Dave's songs. And they created this sort of jazz fusion songwriter band called Dave Matthews Band. And the owner of that bar is a guy named Corin Capshaw, who became Dave's manager and basically said, I'm going to invest wow. in you guys so that you guys don't need jobs. You can just tour around and build fans. I've got a bunch of clubs. He was a club owner. He's like, you can play these clubs, but I really believe you can get fans. So... DMB got this basically investor slash manager huh. to champion their career so that they could go out and do it. And so again, I'm putting all this together in my brain and I'm learning everything about the music industry through money talk and this taper at this tobacco shop. So years down the road, when I finally have the courage to go to California to pursue a dream, I know who I'm looking for. I'm looking for investors. Wow. I'm looking for management. I'm looking for gigs. I've sort of put my playbook together. So then when was that made you be like, did you first move to San Diego? No, no, no. I moved to San Francisco. You moved to San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. So why San Francisco? Because I, I had a friend there. Okay. That was it. I was looking to just have an adventure on the West Coast because I was always born and raised East Coast. And I had gotten a glimpse of the West Coast uh, for a New Year's Eve trip. I just came out here and saw a completely different world, the different geography of the land, topography of the land, different attitude, different weather, different history. I said, this is for me. I want to reset. I want a fresh start. So I packed up all my stuff. I was living in Farmville, Virginia, because I had enrolled in college for a second time. And I said, I'm not staying in school. I'm going to... What made you enroll back in college? Did you feel like you needed... It was sort of the next step on my um, doing things that will be no wasted effort in getting me to my dream. So I was tired of the day job okay. stuff, right? I've had enough of money talk and all that shit. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a real show. Money I think talk. it yeah, is. It sounds I like think it. it's too long. Yeah, I do remember Maria Bartolo Bartolaroma or something. Maybe I don't even remember. Her. I don't know that. She was the lady host uh, on the the stock floor of Wall Street on CNN or something. I, just, I don't know why I know the term money talk. I I think my stepfather was looking at it, looking for it on my TV last time he was in town oh, wow. or something like that. But I'm like, that sounds familiar. Right. So I looked at college as a, as a way to like um, not have to have a day job. I was like, okay, you know what? I'll get a student loan. I'll live at campus. I'll live off my loans. Got it. So it wasn't like I'm giving up on my dream. I need a backup degree. No, no, no. Instead of going to a job every day, I'll go to class and I will get new information and wisdom Jason. that I can then go and put into my guitar and my journaling. This is epic. It is. I'm a smart dude. I know. And it's like I've known you for so long, but I'm like, 
I did not. It makes complete sense I, knowing you, but at the same time, I, I I'm like, inspired. <laughs> I worked very hard to be where I am. So yeah, I started the day job. <laughs> I took out some student loans. Not, I didn't. I didn't ask my parents for any money because I knew that this may not work. Like I may drop out of school, so I don't want that burden of owing my parents thousands of dollars for college. So I got my own loans. And I was correct. I went to school for about two months. And while I was there, I heard a voice in my head say, you need to go to California right now. It's like, really? Right now. I was like, okay, well, I'll wait till the summer. I'll be bi-coastal. I'll go to California the summers. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go to school in the fall and spring back in Virginia. And the voice in my head says, no, 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 no. You need to get in your car and go right now. It scared me. To, it scared. What? Why? So I, I packed up all my stuff. Like you're done. Like I'm you done. don't have a place to live. I had a friend in San Francisco. But no, but I mean like, so in Virginia. I was in, I was in a dorm. Oh God. So you like packed up. Packed up all my stuff in the dorm, not leaving my stuff. I told my friends, I'm like, hey, I'm out. And they're like, you're serious, aren't you? I said, I am so serious. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm telling my parents I'm going to California for spring break. So that's what I told them. I, I took my mom out to lunch and I said, yeah, I'm going to go to California for spring break. And she looked at my car and I it's was about packed. To say, I was like, where was your car? She saw it. It was packed all the way to the top. We're going to have a great time. I don't know what I'm going to need. <laughs> she knew. I talked to her years later about it. She goes, I knew. I knew what you were doing. <laughs> but I couldn't tell anybody because I didn't want to be talked out of it. I was so scared. Oh, I didn't want to be talked out of it. And that's what I had been wondering, yeah, with you having the day jobs and then enrolling in college, like what your parents were thinking. Because when we are young, I and, you know, of course, not even when we're young, we're, there still is this what do my parents thinks, And that it can be a hard thing to believe in ourselves when our parents are oftentimes wanting like a safer choice for yeah. us. You know, like for me, I had that experience where I'm now like, and I always will tell people like, hey, when people don't believe in you or your dreams are not showing up how you want them to as a support, to remember it, to see it as love, because they're just like, they're just trying to protect you. They can't see what you see for yourself. It doesn't mean that they don't believe in you. It doesn't mean that, you know, like your parents, which your parents, I think, were behind you and believed in you is that you can make this happen. But for people out there that might feel like, I don't feel like my parents believe in this thing I'm going to do. Mm. That doesn't mean it means it's because they love you so much and that their minds don't work in the way that you do that. They're just like, no, 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 I'm saving. So like whatever's coming at you, just see it all as love. That's right. Back to you and your story. But so your parents in that process, were you telling them I at any throughout this all? I mean, you went to musical theater school, came mm -hmm. home. Mm hmm. Working cigar shops, playing music at night, or just working trying on your stuff? To, trying to. There was a couple of clubs in Richmond I, I would occasionally get a chance to play, and I hated it because everybody knew me there, at yeah. least in my brain. I get that. They knew me as the high school kid who was a musical guy, and now I barely play guitar, and I have these weird songs. And there wasn't a huge scene out there. I didn't feel special. Uh so I felt I felt better about being when I was in New York because right. I was uh, unknown. Nobody has any idea of who you may be or if you may be good or not. Like where they're like, oh, is that that Jason guy that was in my gym class? Totally. He's not. Remember that time you did that? It or works like the other way around. If I'm on stage and I'm like, oh, God, there's that guy from gym class. <laughs> I don't want to pour my heart out to that guy. <laughs> so 
it works better for me if I don't know who the audience is. Isn't that strange? No, I get that. I, in my own life, I've not been a musician or performer, but I have been, when I've gone through different evolutions of things, I'm like, sometimes I feel comfortable like in a new city where nobody knows me because they don't know who, Trisha that did this or had that experience, whatever, that like we get to present ourselves in the way that we like, I know myself to be this, but that person sees me as this version of me and they attached that yeah. to that. But I'm just this person, okay? That's right. And so I understand how you're saying. Best piece of advice ever given to me on this topic is it's none of my business what you think of me. Mm -hmm. I spent, I have spent so many minutes, probably hours in my life, caring about something I have absolutely know, not, know nothing about. Meaning what this person probably thinks of me. That is an impossible task yeah. to try to know what that is. So it's none of my business what you think of me. And as soon as I really started to apply that, it got easier. It got easier to perform. It got easier to be me. It got easier to take risks. Yeah. You know, I'm going to get back to your story, but I want to share like my big aha. Like one of my sayings on my product and stuff is the only judge of me is me. Mm -hmm. And that's been a big thing I've said. But recently when I, again, I've like, you know, okay, I'm going to do these things. So I've myself been like picking myself up through doubts and fears of these things I want to do. And I was making up, these people aren't going to believe in me. They're going to think, you know, this, that. And what I saw is that no judgment matters unless it's something that we believe to be true about ourselves. So like when we are making up, I bet, what if that person thinks that about me? That's just really because deep you're like thinking that about you. You know, yeah. like no judgment matters. Like for us to sit here and process, oh, if they think Trisha can't have a successful podcast or write a book or whatever, none of those thoughts matter about whoever in the world thinks them, whether it's my significant other or my best-selling author friend or anything. It's if that's a thought that I'm telling myself yeah. that I believe. Yeah. That that's the only, that it's like, the, we don't even care about it. The, we're not ever even actually caring about what other people think about us. It's all our own thoughts yeah. about ourselves. Exactly. The, the, the possible thought that person over there is having is really the thought I'm having. Yeah. It's like, oh, wait, that's me <laughs> judging myself and wondering if they're judging me that. But it's, oh, wait, it's just like me. And I'm projecting that judgment that they could possibly having of me on me. But that's just me talking. That's just me. And so, but when you see that, it's just you, then it becomes, well, let's see how we can work way around that. And that's for me, I was like, oh, Trisha, that's you doubting yourself. That's you judging yourself for that. So how can we work through that? That's great. That's like a reverse magic trick. <laughs> It's like, oh, damn. I know. Shit, oh. that's just my shit. But like, it's good to be aware of that, man. Because that, then the more you're aware of your own shit, if you do come across someone who's outspoken about your shit and being very judgmental, you know that they're just having a bunch of shit. <laughs> oh, I see you talking about yourself. It's going to be okay. But it does. It actually makes me have more compassion for myself and for everyone else because I'm like, I'm not the only one that's doing this Ooh. stuff. Oh my And so gosh. that, you know, like really having that compassion for myself and seeing these things, they make me just look at everybody like, I see you. I got it. Yeah. That negative comment you're leaving for me right now, I, <laughs> I get it. I get it. That is not, you're working through some stuff over there. Yeah. I'm just going to hold some space for yeah. you. Ooh, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good that you can, we can laugh at it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Ah. Uh. Um, well, we were talking about that topic. It came up as if 
where were your parents in any of this of like, you go to music theater, you move back home, you're working in a cigar shop. Oh yeah, we're talking about playing out. So you're playing a little bit of music. Mm -hmm. So to them, were you even saying I'm going to musician or were you just like, oh, I'm, he's a kid that's figuring his stuff out. No, yeah, they knew me. Yep. Because they knew I had had a four track at home and I was making demos. And when I would, I had a nighttime gig as a janitor at elementary school, which was rad because I could put on my four track tapes on my Walkman and listen to them in my headphones and kind of review myself and and see how I can improve the song. So when I got back home the next day, I could tweak that song, change a lyric, do a new recording, et cetera. No different than what I do now with, with the creativity. And being that it was this after hours gig, there was a little music room. I could play piano. My brother would sometimes bring a saxophone and we would jam at this elementary school at midnight and uh, have a blast. So I was making music and my parents knew that. And I would occasionally pull out the guitar at events and I was starting to have a couple of little hits in my community. One song was called the GM Delta 88, which was this track that I made reading the owner's manual from my GM Delta 88, (laughs) which it wasn't a 1988. That was the series of the vehicle. I think it was a 1986 car, but it was called a Delta 88. I have no idea why. But it had a GM Delco sound system and a center instrument cluster. Um, I don't think we need the details. <laughs> no, but these are the actual, the reason I'm saying these things, they were the lyrics in the song. It was a slow beat with a solid bass and it spread around my community and at the local college where I went. And it was really one of my first hits. Another song was Galaxy, which was... Almost word for word, my friend's journal entry about this fantastical story where he, a star had fallen and crashed into the ground and he picked it up and he realized it was a piece of you or like your heart or something. And so I read this while jamming and it became a song and that, that too became one of my hits. So I started to have those experiences and my friends and family around me were, were a part of that. And so they were continuing to push me and support me. Got it. So they were supportive. They weren't like, because you're telling us now how everything you really doing was so intentional, but I could see how from an outsider, they could just be like, well, Jason thinks he's going to exactly. be successful in music. Uh-huh. There was an afternoon where I had gotten to the elementary school early to clean it and not everybody on staff had left yet. And a mom came in that I knew from high school. She was the parent of another kid I was in high school with. She goes, oh, what are you doing here? And I had a mop in my hand. <laughs> I was like, oh, just working on my music. Oh, you didn't say and that. I did. I said, I'm just working on my music. She goes, I thought you were in New York. I was like, yeah, I'm back here. I'm working on my music. And she gave me that look of, oh, all right. Well, good luck with that. And I could see her uh Confusion, I guess. That's all I'll say is maybe she was a little confused or concerned, a concerned parent. But inside of me, I was so naive and so happy. I was like, I am. No, I really am. Like, this is what it looks like. And you just watch. That's what I was going to wondering if there was a part of you fired up like, oh, I'm going to show you. I'm working on my music. You are going to know my music one day. Totally. I was so into it and so naive thinking I will I will not fail. Why is that naive? Why are you calling yourself naive? I guess because as I've gotten older, 
I start to be a little more practical in certain thoughts. And I think, oh, how much energy do I want to put in this or that? And what's the likelihood of failing in that? And what about trying this? And how much money is that going to take in time? Blah, blah, blah. So a little more analytical, right? Yeah. Back in those days when I was 19, 20, I mean, I, I was starting to think in ways of, you know, projecting and promoting my career. But I, I use the word naive because... Failure wasn't an option. Yeah. Failure was not an option. I just was dead set on doing it and it was going to work. I love that. And I see that. That's why for me, though, it was interesting that you chose the word naive because naive to me feel and I don't know if that's the definition for when I hear it, it, it shows up to me as like not like fully understanding like, you know, just sort of and I'm that's just maybe my interpretation. But like I was like, no, to me you seemed like you were like just no i know this is happening for me and like so powerful okay and believing for me naive is is i'm hearing it as a like sort of like soft weak like oh poor little naive jason and you're like no you were like focused i am doing this yeah okay well i was but maybe i was i was naive to the failures I was i was unaware of the potential risks i was naive to got it Got it. So you yeah. did believe so strongly in yourself, but naive meaning like you didn't know the challenges and the big reality of how hard it actually is exactly. to become successful. Yep, totally. Got it. Okay. So I understand that now because, yeah, in my mind, I'm like, what do you mean? Of course, it's going to be hard and successful, but you're committed to it. Yeah. But you didn't. You were just like happy. I love music. I'm going to make love it. <laughs> I'm so unique. <laughs> okay. Just like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so you packed up your car and you moved to San Francisco. Your voice was telling you to go there. You went to San Francisco because you had a friend there. In yep. your mind then, were you like, okay, so I'm going to go to San Francisco. I'm going to, were you like music, music, music? Or were you like, I'm going to find a nice job? Were you still being intentional and practical that way? Well, I had to be smart because I cashed in my student loan check. All that was left of it was about $1,700. And that's what I moved that's to California nice with. Padding. That's a nice, pretty padding, though, especially for a young kid. Yeah, yeah. And gas was a lot cheaper back then, and I had a place to crash. And first couple of weeks, you know, I probably burned through half of it um, just in traveling and getting set up. And um, I put maybe two or $300 in a drawer um, in my pad in San Francisco. I was staying in a basement of this house that had about eight people in it. And I knew somebody that lived in that house, which is how I got in there. And I started looking around for gigs and there was these sort of underground club gigs and coffee gigs and a lot of house concerts. And I was like, okay, well, it's going to take me a while to get to build up the momentum here that I was starting to have in Richmond, but that's fine. I'll find a job. I'll do something that supports my creativity. I'm surrounded by creative people. This is San Francisco. And my friend's boyfriend invites us all to Las Vegas. This is about three weeks after arriving in San Francisco. He's like, hey, a buddy of mine is a concert promoter named Bill Silva. I'm like, I'm just now finally remembering yeah. this story. And uh, Bill Silva is promoting some concerts at the Hard Rock Cafe Hotel in Las Vegas. Let's go. I said, great. I'm I put $200 in my drawer and I had maybe two or $300 in my pocket. And that was about what was left of my money. And I said, that's fine. When I get back from this trip, I have a little bit of money saved that I can pay my rent 
but I will get a job as soon as I get back. So I go to this Vegas thing and I meet so many great people. I mean, friends who now I have been friends with for 20 years since it was actually April 1st, 1999. So, And this was just a couple, three weeks after you drove across the country. This is three weeks after I, yeah, three weeks after. So I show up in Vegas and I meet Bill Silva and I meet a bunch of friends. I meet Marty Diamond, who would eventually become my agent. I meet Jerry Lindahl, who is still, who is technically became my first day-to-day manager and still to this day is my merchandise manager. I meet Justin Jante, who becomes one of my best friends, who to this day manages my farm operations. Uh, we're still very, very close, all three of us. What were all these people doing there? Partying in Las Vegas. <laughs> so it was because just we that there was a concert. Bill. Yep, there were two concerts. Billy Joel one night and uh, Lannis Morissette another night. So you're just attending as a guest. He's like, got you guys guest list tickets. Everybody's just coming. Yep. Oh, okay, you know Bill, you know Bill. And it's just epic and people And that was meeting. Bill's nature. Uh, he's just a, such a loving guy. He invites a lot of people in, friends, family, people of all ages and backgrounds because he just likes to surround himself with creative people, um, interesting people, and obviously trying to keep his ear on new things in life, which is why I believe uh, I might have gotten invited along. And I think my friend in San Francisco probably gave Bill a tip like, hey, this is a talented kid. Maybe you should give him a listen. So I had my guitar and at one point I got to play some songs in a hotel room and Jerry was in there, Bill was in there. And uh I guess back in the day, I found this out later that they had a code that if it sucked, they were going to say something that dismissed them and got them to just go back to life. But I impressed them enough that Bill asked me shortly after, like, what are you doing? Who are you? What are you doing? I was like, well, I don't know. I'm just driving around. I just drove to San Francisco (laughs) from Virginia. I'm, you know, I'm going to go back to San Fran and get a job. I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Um. We started talking more about music, and he he recommended San Diego. He's originally from San Diego and said, uh, you know, San Diego has this really cool coffee shop music scene. That might be a cool place for you to check out. So from Vegas, I went to San Diego. Just on Bill's tip. On Bill's tip. He wasn't, okay, because I knew that you guys met early on and that, did you at some point live? We had never met before Vegas. Right, but so that's, but, but when Bill told you, Hey, check out San Diego Coffee yeah. Shop. He wasn't like, come stay with me or anything at that point. He did say, you're, you're welcome to use our guest room. And uh, so I, I was getting to know Jerry and Justin, who were in the community there. And so I said, all right, all these people seem really great. Okay, so you did have a landing place. I had a landing place. But you still were like, all right, I'm going to try this yeah, out. I just it. met these people. Yeah, I had nothing to lose. I had no job. And... I And they saw something in you, right, that then probably made you believe more in yourself. Yeah, this yeah. is happening. And anytime people wanted to be enthusiastic around me or my music, I, I gave them a shot. That's very, very helpful. Surround yourself with talented, hardworking people, and it will only add to your own fire, right? So in Vegas, I was sitting at this roulette table getting hammered. And I accidentally put the wrong chips on some numbers, <laughs> meaning I was down to like $75. And that was all I had in my pocket. And then I had the $200 in the drawer in San Francisco. Oh. I was like, all right, well, I should get off this roulette table. I'm going to hold this $75 over here. Meanwhile, the drinks are free in Las Vegas. And I'm 21. So I'm 
going for Hello, it. Hello, Friedrich. Yeah, I'm 21. <laughs> I welcome Unchaperoned. You. I just, I'm seeing two concerts. I'm a guest of the promoter. I'm a, I'm a big shot. And I accidentally grab a $25 chip and put it on a number. And then the guy goes, no more bets. And I see my loss. I see it. I'm like, oh my gosh. Now I'm down to 50. And my number hit. And I won a thousand dollars. Oh shit! Yeah, I so I thought, cash me out. Like I'm done. I get to walk away. I, I probably spent 140 bucks at the table or something, but I walked away with a thousand. I could breathe. I say like, I don't have to go back to San Fran immediately and get a job. I have money in my pocket, so that also gave me a little confidence to go to San San Diego. I was like, hey, I got a few more weeks. I just bought myself a, like a month, maybe more. So. Went to SD, crashed at Bill's house in his guest room. I mean, met so many people right away because Bill was also managing some bands in San Diego. So I met Eric Hinojosa almost day one, who still plays keys in my band. He's a neighbor. He's the reason why I live where I live. Uh, I, I mean, I met some lifelong friends. Hey there, it's Trisha, host of this very awesome podcast. Coming to you with a quick message to tell you, to remind you, did you know that I have a daily inspiration app available on both the App Store for Apple and Google Play? It's called Own Your Awesome. And it's basically like a virtual card deck with hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations. You can come to the app anytime you're not feeling so stoked, full of joy, just want an attitude switch. It can be your daily morning break time, evening practice. You can also even set a reminder in the app to come and pull your card. You can hit the little show me a card button and get one at random. You can swipe through. It's easy to share. And there's even a little journal section in there for you to share your thoughts, what you're feeling about the card or how you're feeling that day. It's a little private sanctuary for you. So yeah, Go get the app. It's only $3.99 US dollars. That's not a monthly fee. That's a one-time purchase. There's no ads or anything. It's just $3.99 and you get hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations to get you in a place of owning who you are, loving who you are, and realizing, hey, this is my life and I've got to claim it. And now let's get back to the episode. So now that starts to pick up into you becoming a musician, you're playing out. What starts to show up then as like, yay, you know, you're still like you said, originally, you were naive, like you believe in yourself, but you're naive in as to heart, how hard it is. And then this like magical sort of thing happens. Mm -hmm. So as you then do start playing out, are you getting bigger opportunities? Or even maybe like when you get your first record deal, is there ever a point then when you're so excited, but you're also like doubting yourself and like, am I actually, mm. you know, like, can I do this? Am I as talented as I think I am? Like, I want to hear about, are there any sort of self-sabotaging thoughts or things that you had to face coming up? Or were you just the whole time sort of feeling like, yeah, like, I'm amazing. I'm going to keep doing this. So from that point, arriving in San Diego, it, was be, it would be about three years before I actually had the record deal. Okay. So three years and then that you're like playing in the coffee shops. And writing and working hard. I was like, okay, I'm in love with San Diego. I love the coffee shop scene, but I still only have 12 songs. I don't have a lot of cool stuff. 
and I don't have gigs immediately. People just don't want me to show up and play. I got to earn Even it. Even though Bill invited you down there, it's not like he was like, and now, Jason, you get to play here. He was just a guy that offered you a place. Yes, and he was a guide. Occasionally, I would get a cool opening slot because of his connections. Got it. But I had to do the day-to-day grind. And that kind of probably made you be more like, oh, shit, so yes. like this is the real time of yeah. I'm going to be a working musician. How does this work? Exactly. And like, I yeah, I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be a working musician, I got I need to have songs. I need to have chops. I need to be able to play. I need to be able to stand up and play guitar. I couldn't do that at that time. You know, I need to be able to talk to the audience. I need to do all these little things to make myself a better performer. So what did you do? Did you have like start like, I'm going, did you start a writing process back then? Like, you know, like I need to write more no. songs. How did you get to it? I, yeah, I would just write. I didn't have a practice other than probably sit in my room and do it from time to time or sit in the garage and do it. Um, I didn't call it a practice. I just know I needed to do it and wanted to do it. I was also making things up. Back in those days, I really didn't edit. I would just write down anything that came out of my mouth and turn it into a song. I would improvise a lot on stage. So for me, it was play as much as possible. So I was playing house parties. I was playing I was playing open mics that would eventually turn into songwriter showcases, which is if you're popular at the open mics and you have a lot of good songs, they might invite you back so that you can do like more of a spotlighted set in front of a focused audience. Uh, I would go to coffee shops where there was no entertainment. And I said, can I be your entertainment? Can I bring fans here? And that was probably for free. Oh, yeah. For you're just free. like, can you please let me play here? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Not like, which I think is important, too, because, again, I try to tell people, and I don't know if it's this, people are like millennials or whatever. I think it can happen in any generation that you're just like, sometimes you believe so strongly in yourself, like, no, I can do this. So, like, just you need to give me that job or this, or whatever, that people want to skip ahead. And I'm like, most of the times I'm just like, you got to just start doing it and working for free and prove to people and yourself that like, oh yeah, I'm good at this. And then when people be like, start to show up. That's right. So yeah, just want to be clear. You were showing up like, can I play here for free, please? Exactly. I think I had done like an afternoon set at this little coffee shop around the corner from Java Joe's and Java Joe's was the premier coffee shop. It was the best name. It was the best sort of um, collection of songwriters from the community. There was a built-in audience. That's where I wanted to play. But I was a nobody, so I couldn't get in there. So around the corner, this lady, Norma, at Newbreak Coffee, she would occasionally <laughs> have gigs. Like the coffee shop scene. I couldn't get into I couldn't. It. Joe was like, who are you? No, thanks. Come back when you have an audience. Why would, it, why would a venue owner put you in there if you don't have an audience? And I understood that. So I had played Norma's place one day and I realized she didn't have live entertainment. So I said, hey, would you mind if I brought in a PA on Friday nights and advertised and had our own thing? And she let me do that starting in the summer of 99. I did it all the way up until probably Christmas of 99, almost every Friday night. And I would promote the sunset which which set right across the street in the ocean. Say, so, hey, let's all gather at 7.30 or whatever for the sunset and then at 8 p.m. move into New Break and for a night of music. And it started with two people. Two people were Shauna Schwartz and Candy Friend. I'm calling them out on the microphone. They came all by themselves and they were my first audience. Oh, I thought they like played with you. No, no they were the they people were that audience. showed up. They showed up. Oh, that's awesome. Because I had done another gig playing a side stage at a Jewel concert and we passed out flyers. on. And if you sign up to my email list, 
You had email us back in the day. Oh, working yeah. It. And I had Jerry and Justin, who I've mentioned, out in the audience handing out these little postcards. To this day, right now, this morning, I had to confirm a postcard for Jerry and Justin <laughs> about avocados. <laughs> we are still doing the exact same stuff that we did back then. I'm serious. So anyway... They helped me pass out these postcards and people could fill them out and mail them in. And then they'd be part of my email list. And I would let people know about my shows. Whose idea was that? Was that one of theirs or did you? Who had? Probably Jerry's, Justin's. Justin had a family friend that ran a print shop. So we got a deal, if not free, on the printing for these postcards. But yeah, it was like, were they like, hey, I've seen other musicians do that or like? Who had that idea? That's a pretty... Probably. Yeah, I think other musicians were doing it. This was... I didn't even have my own website yet. Right. This is late 90s. It was analog, kind of. I still have all those postcards. So you bought your own PA or you found, had a friend borrow one and you're like, you made that happen. I moved to California with a PA. Okay, got it. Yeah. So you're like, I, I can, can play. I play here? Yep. I'm bringing gear. I'm doing the work. Mm-hmm. You were building your audience. I built my audience. So the first two people came on that first show and the next week they brought, they each brought a friend and there was four people. And the week after that, there was eight people. And I watched it double week after week after How'd week. How'd that feel? Amazing. I was thrilled. We're like, I'm doing I'm it. I'm doing it. It's working. What I had ex- anticipated, what I had uh, envisioned, but it's also on two different levels, like business, like my plan, I'm building the audience of this is the plan, but then also like, oh, they're coming back yeah. because they like my music. So it's also a kind of two part. I, this is working. Yeah, this is working. I thought what I'm doing is good enough that it is working. It's going to work. And it, I saw it. And by the end of 99, I had a big fat audience. So every time I would go down to Java Joe's, there would be an audience that went with me. Until eventually, starting in 2000, uh, October of 2000, actually, I started to play regularly at Java Joe's. And that became my home every Thursday night, the Javas. And it, that, then it really blew up. So in that time, so was then your first sort of mission that like, I need to start playing and you were working, you were just all together okay, this is happening. I need to get better at performing. I need to build an audience. I need to write songs. songs. So in that time, were you then performing and writing more songs? Because also when you're playing at coffee shops, like how long are you playing? If it's just you, I guess you could be playing... Two to three hours. Wow. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Just do my own thing. And is that covers too? Or just... Uh, Occasionally, but I sucked at covers. Nice. No, I mean, nice, not nice that you, not nice that you suck, but nice that you were pretty much doing original or making music up. I wanted to do original stuff. I, I never felt like I did covers well, unless, unless I had an emotional attachment to the lyric of a cover song, then I would do it. Otherwise I would just do my own thing and be weird and, and improvise a lot and tell jokes and scat a whole bunch. And I was starting to meet people in the community who could join me. So I, I eventually met Toko Rivera, who started joining me to make the sound expand. His brother, Carlos Almeida, was a huge influence. Other players like Gregory Page um, would just start showing me new chord progressions and ways to look at songwriting that influenced me. I was I was in it. And the nights that I weren't playing, the nights that I wasn't playing, I would work the door at Java Joe's. I would run sound at Java Joe's. Yeah. I'd plug in the mics. I would do whatever I could to help out. Just to stay in it. 
Yeah, I get that. I'm like saying, yeah, because even though I didn't have the like perform, but it's just that's how live sound was for me. That was my first career. And I was just like, I will do anything. And even once I became a live sound engineer, I moved to California. I would work as a runner on my days off because I just loved the world. Like I was drawn to the music industry, not for performing, but and I'm still drawn to the music industry and like one to talk to musicians. But it's I understand that feeling of like, I'll I'll do what I just this is my world now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to go. This is a great place. This is my clubhouse. So then it sounds like early on you maybe didn't face too many negative thoughts. Like you were just in a bubble of excitement and this is happening. And that's why I use the word naive because I never gave myself too many chances to think I was going to fail. Yeah. And I was so focused on, nope, this is working. Almost egoically uh, assumptive. I wonder, I don't like to like blame social media th- for things, but now looking at the days of like, I wonder if a person, you know, like you in this world, what's so much easier to compare yourself Ooh, to yeah, other people in the reality things. TV. There's like every like The Voice and American Idol, which are amazing. But I'm like, I wonder if that changes how young people dream about their possibilities now. I think so. But it also could make more people dream because you're seeing these people like on TV, like, oh, wow, this 15 year old or this 37, you know, like the vastness of this can happen. Like they're working hard, but then also, so I feel like it plays in two, whatever, two, I don't know what words I'm using, but like it could inspire more people, but also then you're trapped more into, is this happening fast enough comparison? Oh, that person's doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard for us to compare 20 years ago to, it is now because I'm not coming up now in this social media thing. So, but what I do know is back then there were less, if any, like going viral moments. There were less moments where something could get hot real fast overnight and explode overnight. You know, there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram. And I think what that created was, um, a nice pace. Yeah. We're not feeling so urgent of like, this has to happen now because you're seeing other people. It was, and because you can't forget that just doing the work and being in that clubhouse, doing, being the runner, being the sound man or being on stage is all part of that dream. Whereas if I'm just, if 20 years ago I played a gig and then I went home and just looked at social media between gigs, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really be in that world. Right. Instead of like writing more songs or whatever it yeah. could be. Keeping my eyes open to my own experiences. So, let's, so now we're talking about comparison then. So back in those days, you wouldn't have social media, but were there other people in the coffee shops? Like, were there other regular at Javi Joe's before maybe you got in or anything that did you have any sort of that of like, oh, that person's, I think I'm better than them or like, how come they get a spot and I don't yeah, sort of feeling? There was some of that. And I think that'll always be like that. There's some competition, or at least you would sense it. There was a couple of uh, you know veterans of the coffee shop world that had been there a long time. They were great players, great songwriters. And I knew because I had this relationship with Bill Silva and these little connections that I, I could also get a hand up outside of the coffee shop. I was getting opening gigs. I was getting these things. So I felt... I I felt a little special and sometimes my brain would 
make me think I was being judged by some of the other people in the coffee shop. For example, one night I'm on stage and I said, uh, hey, does anybody have an, a pick? I need a pick badly. I need a guitar pick badly. And a guy in the back of the room goes, no, you pick badly. And it was one of the veteran coffee shops, guys, songwriters. And I was, it was a good comeback, but I was crushed. I was like, that's a good comeback. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great comeback, but I was crushed. It was like, oh, this is one of those guys. That you think that maybe they're making up. Like, that guy doesn't deserve that opening yeah. spot. He just gets it because he knows so-and-so, but he's not any good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, until so then that make you sort of spin in thoughts of yourself of, am I even good? Do I deserve this? Am I special? Like, special, like, meaning, like, did you feel like, I'm special, like, I'm great, or like, I know that I kind of got a little head is up because I know that person. Both. Yeah, both. I mean, it wasn't a thing I was constantly swimming in, but I was sensitive to that. Yeah. You know, I knew that there were a lot of people in there that worked their asses off, and I was still getting these opportunities that some other artists weren't getting. Yeah. And I feel like, and sometimes in life we can feel like, oh, if that was just like luck, and so then I deserve that. But really if you're there and appreciating it and you'll know, like, I don't feel like anybody can get somewhere with just pure luck. Like, sure, you got handed those spots, but it wasn't like, okay, like, but nothing would come of you. If you got handed an opening spot and you suck, you want to get another one, no matter who you knew. Right. Yeah. So the the luck would be, yeah, you got the opening spot. Great. Luck is like going viral. It's like, oh my God, I exploded. I'm so popular. But where, where does that get you? Like, what's your next thing? If you don't have a regular practice of doing and showing up and making things and making something new to follow that, then that luck is, is only going to be for that one moment. It's yeah. not going to be for life. And I feel like in my past career, you know, when people would be like, oh, how did you make this happen? How did you start working for this company? And I'd feel like wanted to say I was so lucky, but I had amazing opportunities. But because I showed up and I did the work and yes, I also had a great personality, you know, that might have helped. And so I also wanted to bring that up of like the luck and like, yeah, you know what? You had Bill helping you in some areas, but that wasn't because just because like but Bill liked you because he believed in you and because you were a great musician and you showed up and you did your job probably and you're professional. Like these different things where like, I'm just expanding on this for anybody that starts to like take credit for yourself. Like, oh, one of my same, own you're awesome. Own who you are. And that like, you might've people helped you out, but probably for a reason. And that the reason it worked out is because you consistently showed up and did the work, which Jason, we are hearing did. I sure did. <laughs> it was very intentional. I sure did. Everything. You know, like when I met Bill and, uh, so Bill ended up moving to Los Angeles, uh, shortly after I moved to San, San Diego, which was a huge, it was a gift in that he said, Hey, I'm moving to LA. My house is for sale. You can't live here for too long, but you can live in it until it sells. Hmm. So if occasionally somebody's going to need to come by and see the house, let them in or take off. Don't be there. You know, and I wasn't home that often. Well, the house didn't sell for two years. So I got to live rent free. That was a huge, huge gift because how do you live on coffee shop wages? And that's why you didn't need to go get a fun job to fill your daytime hours. Exactly. So I could live and get by on 
my little coffee shop gigs and I started to record my shows and sell CDs as a merch item. So not only were you making your door money, but you could also make an extra 50 bucks if you sold five CDs. So a little entrepreneurial spirit kind of kicked in to, to make, give myself a good quality of life. And also knowing that once I had enough songs and my show was good enough and I would be ready, I, I still have Bill as a resource, which was pretty cool. No, so that was always a driving force. It's like, show up, do the work, do the work, do the work, be ready. Because one day, Bill and I are going to want to go to a record company and say, we are something. We want to work together. I didn't know what it was going to look like, but looking back, what it looks like is once you have an audience, once you have songs and you're selling something, everybody wants to work with you. They want a piece of that action. They want to help promote you and explode you and exploit you. And that's eventually what happened. Eventually, I'd put out my own little Live at Java Joe's CD. It had maybe 20 songs on it or something. We were selling a lot of them. Was that just like you had like an at home, like, yeah, we just like burning CDs? Oh, I'm like trying to even remember CDs right. back in the day. <laughs> if you really want to know, this is a good story. <laughs> yes, we had multiple CD burners at home and they were real time. So you had to, oh, <laughs> you had to burn it as it played. It wasn't like in oh, fast wow. forward. Okay. So we might be able to do like five an hour or something. I don't know. It was, crazy because you had multiple of them so you were investing yeah we were investing but here's here's where we really this is good and i could probably go to jail for this (laughs) i don't know if i could it's is there like a statute of like it was so many years ago and you know what i'm gonna leave some details out (laughs) (laughs) this is a fun story jerry aka merchandise manager Moves to Los Angeles following Bill up there because they were, they were bros. And Jerry gets a job at a record company working in the film and TV department. And I get to be Jerry's intern. Okay. All right. So now I'm working at a record company. So then did you move, you move to LA at this point or just uh, like coming up? I but, was going back and forth okay. now because... Because you had your San Diego following. I still had a little San Diego, definitely a San Diego following and... Uh, the, the house was near ready for sale, but I think I was still kind of in and out of the house down there. But at this point I had a lot of friends. I could sleep at Java Joe's as well. I could go to LA and stay with friends. My, my, my little, my little community was expanding. So I was interning at this record label, learning more about record companies because I didn't know anything about them. So this was a way for me to get in the door, kind of understand what they do, meet people in the industry. Who happened to work at that label? Patrick Pocklington. I meet him because I'm his intern putting together his Ikea furniture for his new office. Okay, Patrick Pocklington, by the way, ends up becoming my day-to-day manager from I'm yours all the way up until waitress. So 10 years. I get to work with Patrick. Um, but fast forward, uh, I mean, rewind 20 years ago, I'm an intern building his furniture and he's an awesome guy, even back then at a record label. So that's a fun gig. I'm learning some things. Well, after hours at that record label, they had a whole wall of CD duplicators. I mean, a wall, like 30 to 50 CD duplicators because they're a record company. They got to make demos. They got to pump them out. So after hours, 
I'd be in there, I'd put my CD in, and I'd put like 50 blank CDs in the machine, and I'd pump out free duplications of my own stuff. That's why I think Wait, I could go to jail. are you also taking their free, their yeah, blank, blank CDs? CDs? Got it. Okay. That's what I was like, well, they're just using your recorders, but you I'm using their machines and I'm using their, and I might've taken a few padded envelopes to, to ship out my <laughs> uh, CDs to my growing online fan base. Uh, but you know, I, you gotta be resourceful. I don't, I don't think you're going to go to jail. I don't think I'm going to go to jail. <laughs> that, Record company's still doing well and everybody's happy. Resourcefulness, though. Yep. Yes. You resourcefulness. Were I was after it. We sing, we dance, we steal things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we make things happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what else? You know, I love the leg you're trying. <laughs> yeah, I'm tired of holding it. Album number. <laughs> album number was that? Three. That was my third really? album. Really? That was only three? Yeah. I don't know where we are. <laughs> Did I do seven records? No. Uh, third album was We Sing, We Dance. Fourth album, Love is a Letter Word. Fifth album, yes. Sixth album, no. That's it. And a whole bunch of live albums. No, right. No. Yes I got and confused. No. Yeah. yeah. But because I didn't see it yeah. visually. No. Yes. I was like, this is not. In the proper timeline, but that was actually something I was going to ask you about was yes and no. Not as, well, somewhat as the names of your albums, but uh, you wrote an album mm -hmm. entitled Yes. Mm -hmm. I've known you to be a big yes person. Mm -hmm. I am a big preacher of the word no. Uh-huh. N-O. Sure. Do you struggle That's with saying No. Not anymore. I mean, struggle sometimes depends on the ask and who the person is because I, oh, I'm so sensitive and I, I want to, you know, I love that little serotonin, dopamine, whatever happiness hit you get when you tell somebody yes, mm. you see their excitement yeah. and overflows. And then five minutes later you go, oh shit, I got to do this. So I've gotten much better at that. I used to give out wimpy yeses all the time. And now, where do you do you feel like where that shifted? Just age and experience. But you don't have a like. Was it before the Yes album or anything like? Because when you put out that Yes album, did you where was that big Yes coming from? I mean, you titled an album Yes. <laughs> that Yes came from the relationship I have with Raining Jane. And the relationship I have with Christina. Those were the those are the big relationships in my life at that time. And I was as I do with records, I write and write and write all and I have no idea where the album is even while I'm writing it. I just know I'm building the song base. And when I looked at the path of my music with Raining Jane, which had not yet really been celebrated publicly, that felt like such a yes. It's like that path seems so easy and it seems so beautiful. It seems so special. And at the same time, my growing relationship with my wife was also starting to to come to fruition, I guess, or you could say, or it was being nurtured. And so th that album is called a yes because of those things. I'm Do you feel like with hearing that big yes for yourself, was that because there might have been 
pushback? Like, let's talk about with the Janes. Was there any pushback from like your label or management of like, no, we're not feeling this and that you're like, yes, we're doing this or was just your own like, I yes, I'm doing this. This is the time. There, was there any like things that you had to sort of like fight for in making that album with the Janes? Because it was a little bit of a departure. It was. Uh, but no, I didn't have to fight for it with the label. They loved the hey. concept. They loved the songs. Or pressure. There's also something I was going to ask like, do you feel like in that creative process of having to turn in label or turn in records to labels and there's a timeline and stuff, did you feel like you struggled more with the pressure from a label or pressure on yourself? Myself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because sometimes a label can't, in fact, they rarely tell you what they want. They don't know what they want because all they know is they want something original and they want it to be good. Yeah. They don't, they don't give you any other details. So if you send in 20 songs and they're all rejected, it's not that they're looking for something else. It's just that you need to rethink what you're working on and make it original and make it good. So a lot of my songs are rejected when I send them in, which is fine. Is that fine now? Was that somewhere you had to get to a place of like, this is what happens. I write a lot of songs. They get rejected. I write more. We get there. Yeah. Was that, yeah. Was there a point where you're like, oh, I'm terrible. They don't like me. They don't get me. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. There's that over and over and over again. But I had, I've always had a good work ethic of like, go back, just write something else. Do something else. Rethink the situation, you know. And connecting back with the resounding well, this is like, why do I do this? Yeah. And that gets you back in there because I'm sure that takes you out sometimes. Like I keep writing and they keep telling me no yeah. or that's not good enough. And so then you just have to like, what, come back to what you believe to be true about yourself? Yep. So yeah, most of the pressure is from within on myself. So when I started looking at material around that Yes record, um, you know, I'd even had a song, Have It All, was already in my catalog at that point. And other things to do to bounce around and be a pop star with all these sounds or whatever, but I, they, those weren't fulfilling to me. I was, I was writing something I th thought they wanted or I thought the world needed. But when I listened to the stuff I was doing with Raining Jane, it sounded original. It sounded fresh. It sounded beautiful. It sounded like the music I really make in my backyard with my friends. So that's where the yes came up. I was like, this feels so easy and natural that. That's why it became yes. And when we talked about yes in our promotion for that record, we did it lightly and kind of vaguely, just how, because we were friends since 2006, the Janes and I, and we continued to say yes and meet and write songs, it eventually grew into something. Like our willingness to keep showing up, our willingness to say, yes, let's try again. Yes, let's write another song. Yeah. Let's meet again. I think I started working with you like maybe the next year or whatever. But I, so I know that you knew them before I started working with you on that. Yeah, to see that you were always like, oh, writing with the Janes here and there throughout the years. And then it mm -hmm. became like, I thought it was amazing and so huge that you then chose to make them be your band and write the songs and bring them on stage sure. with you. Because yeah, it was like, yeah, you're showing up, but it could have just felt like, yeah, they're just some people I write music with here and there. Cause you write. Yeah. Cause there are a lot of people I write music with that never make it on stage. Um, yeah. I've known the Jane since before I'm yours even came out. So we wrote one of the first songs we wrote together was a beautiful mess, which ended up on that same album with I'm yours. So I knew 
from the first collab that we could do cool things. So I never wanted to give that up. But sure enough, we made an album together and it's only grown. And then yes, in relationship to your wife was maybe it was showing up because it was like after the searching and trying on different relationships of like, okay, yeah. Like, was it again, like when I'm hearing yes, it's sort of like I'm hearing it in the back of your head. Like, yes, yes, yes. Like you're like, oh, were you thinking like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to settle down or this stuff. And that you're just like kept hearing yes. Is that how you meant it in, in reference to Christina, your wife? Yeah, she and I knew each other for a long time, as you know. <laughs> I was like, uh, I happened to introduce Jason to his wife as she uh, Thanks, has Trish. been one of, yeah, she we met went. the first day of college oh my in 1999. Gosh. Incredible. And we've known each other since then. So Jason has known his wife through me for many years. Wow, that's right. So she knew that I'm a super normal, super regular, <laughs> and very regular guy. She knows all of my personal uh, charms. Yeah, and honestly, she really knew you well because Jason and I worked closely for many years and Christina is always been one of my most valued friends and she's someone that you trust and you talk to in the heart of gold and that you can tell anything. So Christina was the person I would vent to Jason about, actually. (laughs) So she did know you really well. Oh, you would you would vent to Christina about working yeah, with like me. Yeah, like in those times yeah. where like we, yeah, like there were sometimes we were like li- working very closely together for years. And if you're venting about your like boss or whatever, then yeah. So I was like, <laughs> she did know you as the regular guy. No, no. So <laughs> we, we dated once, I think in 2010, but I was, you know, she was married to her career and I was married to being my career and dating lots of people and I tried dating others and it, yeah, so it was a little wishy-washy and I thought I wanted something more convenient or something more like me in the music world and I don't know, egoic, young, horny, you have different motives at different ages in your life and I don't regret a single relationship. I've loved every one. I've only dated rad people. I, I might have regret some of the ways I got out of those relationships because I just didn't have the tools, didn't have the communication skills, but I don't regret any of it. It all contributed to where I am and who I am now. And uh, so Christine and I decided we'd get back together or give it another shot, regardless of our schedules. There was something about each other that we really loved and admired and it served. Like we, we had similar visions and similar projects we wanted to do side by side without having to change who we are, which was spectacular. And it just kept growing. It kept growing. It felt really good. And the entire time I'm writing, yes, she's coming into my life and nourishing my soul in ways that are feeding the songs. It's feeding my work. It's growing a garden in my life, literally tomatoes (laughs) in the backyard, as well as music. That it just, that constant yes, that it felt so good. That's why yes was yes. And the week that the album came out, I proposed to her. That's right. And she said yes when the album Yes debuted in the world. Was that then like, so yeah, again, like tying into like yes, where you're relating it to making them with James and your wife. Is that how it sort of fit like, and she will be my wife? Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, subliminally, subconsciously, yes, yes, because I mean, I was talking to my astrologer, like, is this the girl? And my astrologer, like, yes, this is the one. She's your Venus. She's a banker. You're a farmer. You work really well together. <laughs> my astrologer likes the farmer's almanac. So I'm way into that. <laughs> do you still talk to Nova regularly? I sometimes do. You know what? Anybody can make a million dollars, Trisha, but. Billionaires use astrologers. <laughs> oh, really? Is yeah. that proven? It's not proven, <laughs> but it's what she says. <laughs> and she's a billionaire, oh. thanks to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. No, I, I am interested. She's not very expensive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and we will be linking Nova in the show notes. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. That would be a great podcast. We- no, Talk but to Nova. We could, but we also we could put her information in the show notes if anybody wants to reach out to Nova as their astrologist. That's a good idea. Wow. Her daughter's been training under her to oh. take over. It's really sweet. Yeah. But yeah, so Jason has used an astrologist for how long now? 20 years. Bill Silva introduced me right. to her. Yeah. And how yeah, how often do you feel like you talk to her? Oh, it's gotten less and less once a year now, sometimes every 18 months. And get, she just gives you, like, looks at your chart, shows you what's coming up, what she uh-huh. sees for you. Yep. And what it helps is for people who think it's hocus pocus, it's data and it it's there to confirm your intuition because you're already going to be living it that way and thinking yeah. and feeling certain ways. And if someone outside of you is just looking at numbers and stars yeah. and says, hey, this happens and this happens and this feels, and it suddenly feels synchronistic, then go with it, right? So... It's worked for me for a long time in ways of where should I live? The quality of life should I live? In a city versus the country? How often do I need to put my hands in the dirt? Uh, When should I tour? When should I not? Um, I'm just going to, you said the word should a lot in a row. Okay, no problem. Just in the future, you'll shift that to where do I want to tour? Where do I want to live? But yes, it's going through your life. You were asking these questions to yourself and it was nice to have that data. Yeah. I guess I used the word should in that these were recommendations by no. the astrologer. I get it. I just like, it's my job to myself to acknowledge that word shift because I am a big proponent of eliminating the word should from my vocabulary. Because did you see how much powerful those shifts sounded? Where should I live? Where do I want to live? When should I tour? When do I want to tour? Right. So I get, I like, obviously, I know we all use the word should, but the people out there listening probably... Very powerful. No, I always talk about eliminating the word should, so I just felt like I needed to, <laughs> to tap into Thanks that. Thanks for the reminder. I'm <laughs> yeah. shooting all over myself. <laughs> you were talking past tense in that, yeah, and that how using the astrology helped you to probably get beyond that should and to feel what, to be able, because that's... Often the switch with should and want is that you're trying more into your intuition, which we fight. And that's what when you ask yourself, what do I want? It is a more challenging question because then you are like, ah, shit, I don't. What do I want? It's easier to just say what should. Come on, people, give me some suggestions. Let me follow someone else's blueprint. What shows up there? The more powerful question is what do I want? Because then it's like, ah. I have to actually like then answer my own question. Oh my gosh. Fuck, what do I want? When do I want to tour? What music do I want to 
to play. I have to ask myself that and listen. Um, so that's yeah. great. <laughs> so using astrology though, then does, like you said, that was my experience. I've had different, I don't have a, I also, I had used, uh, Christina's astrologer. You also had that in common. So she was the main person I had ever used. And that was my experience. And I would talk to her in times where I was definitely like, not sure what I was doing with my life, feeling I needed shifts or something when my father passed away, different times when I had had those conversations. And it was like a great, like being able to tap into intuition because it wasn't like they're telling you, here is your future and we are showing you this, what will happen. But it it was like showing data that made me be able to trust myself more. Or if it was a time of, this is a time where you're going to be more tuned into yourself. And that's why I find it. I'm not like obsessed with astrology and moon cycles and stuff, but I do love hearing those. Oh, that's what's happening with the moon. I've had an off day. Great. I can just blame it on the moon or like <laughs> not blame it, but just be like, be okay with it. Yeah. Be okay with I, today wasn't my most productive day and I felt kind of funky and that's okay that I, a lot of times it does have to do with astrology and moon, but it's also then gives ourselves more permission to like, yeah. Hey, everything's not a bright sunshiny day every day, yep. which, which also reminds me this. Um, I often remember this day on tour with you when I was touring as joyologist and I don't remember the day or where we are. I feel like we were overseas and you just looked at me and said, why is everything or like, why is every day different? Or like, why isn't every day the same or something like that? Because you were having, it was a day where things were like, you weren't like, yay, life. Or I don't know if it was interviews or what was happening. And it just was like the most, it's just like such a simple question, but the most profound of like, why isn't every day the same? Like, why don't I feel great and awesome and whatever? Like, I don't, you know, like can't remember that attention, but it was sort of like, I think you were having a harder day of living your amazing dream life where you're traveling around the world, performing to thousands of people who want to sign your, have you sign things and hug them. And like, you know, it's like you are, you live your dream. You're playing your original music, but some days don't feel as great as others, huh? No, they don't. So yeah, it's good to have as many tools as you can to, to comfort yourself through those days. And like, yeah, I can just be like the permission of like, instead of getting so deep into why am I off today? Why am I not feeling it? Why am I not like, hmm. Yeah. Maybe just it's off the today. moon. Or yeah. like, like, hey, I'm having an off day and that it helps to apply that and be okay with it and just be like, well, again, so how am I going to get on stage and have an awesome show? Yeah. How do you do that? It's gotten easier now. Now I just get on stage and have an awesome show <laughs> because that usually is the remedy. Yeah. If I uh, if I'm having an off day, it's just because my brain is so busy being a pain in the ass, and I start to or I've or I've just uh, squandered my time because now we have a phone and we can look at emails or we can look at texts, and it may not be the best time to look at those things, but they're right there, and so if you see them, it suddenly adds to what the brain is having to. Uh, sort and for me, I'm I'm always sorting priorities. Like, okay, what do I need to I need to call this person back by a certain time? I need to give this person an answer. I need to advance this. Blah 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 blah. And if I do too much of that, I can really spin myself out and not have a good time. So I've learned to to put that down. But the best remedy for not having a great day, even on a show day, is just finally getting on stage because once I'm there. 
Like, oh yeah, this is why I do everything else is to surrender to this music, is to have my body vibrate, to breathe, to have these controlled exhales, to sing these words. Oh my gosh, the words that I've written, my former self wrote these songs that when I walk (laughs) out on stage, I'm transformed by them. I'm saying all these positive things and I get to experience them. I get to recreate these transformative moments on stage. So the best remedy for me is that if if right before I hit the stage I'm still wrecked, there's always yoga. And like even 10 minutes of shavasana can reset my whole system, which is really great. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So like in those moments when you're not like you can't see, once I get on stage, I, like I'm going to like what are the tools that you pull on to be like I'm not feeling it. I'm going to have to get on stage. I what what's going to shift this that yeah yeah nowadays I just shut everything down it's going to be like 26 minute nap or I'm going to go 26 minute nap or I'm going to go do a little flow a little yoga a little shavas something that will just stop the busyness stop the busy work get people out of my face and reset reset, reset the system. So that has become my, my trick, which is really nice when I'm on the road. Back in the day, it was slam doors, break guitars. I turned a fruit basket into fruit juice once just by punching it. I mean, I just destroyed it. And my dad was in the room and he felt, I think he was crying a little bit because he oh, saw me having like a, this yeah. little mini nervous breakdown. That was long, long time ago. It was pre-2005. 2006. And after that, uh, after those episodes, that's when I actually started to get into yoga and better eating. I stopped smoking cigarettes, stopped drinking so much coffee. I was about to just ask, do you remember like what made you shift or was it just someone showing up and being like showing you this other way? Or were you just like, I can't carry on like this anymore? Or what made you start to shift into taking better care of yourself? A little of both. Um, seeing it in others, like great teachers, like Denise Kaufman, a yoga teacher. Um, people I was surfing with, like Andy Powers, Tristan Prettyman and her family. Uh, I would go surfing and feel amazing, but then I'd get in my car and have a cigarette and feel not amazing. So I was like, okay, these don't go well together. So prior to surfing, were you not someone that really like do, do fitness stuff? Yeah, I was like, what do you, I'm like, what do you guys call it? Yeah, girls are like. I didn't do it. I didn't. So surfing was your first like into like, oh, moving my body. I'm being active. Like, yeah, full range of motion. I need to be able to breathe. And yeah, I need to be able to have endurance and stamina because I'd go out and paddle and my arms would be tired. And within five minutes, I could hardly breathe. So I, I stopped smoking. Surfing was really what helped me stop smoking. Is Tristan what got you into surfing? Or you start before dating uh, no, her? No, Tristan. Shout out Tristan. Shout Rittyman, out Tristan P and you. her family for how do you start surfing? You get in the water. That's it. Like I looked at the ocean for years, but I didn't know how to start. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I needed. But she and her family, they were like, here's a board, get a wetsuit, go out, get in the water. And they didn't, they can't teach you. Nobody can teach you how to surf. You just have to get in. Because sure enough, the first time she paddles out to the outside, catches waves, and I'm on the inside just getting tossed. But that's how it starts. That's how it works. And then you just keep showing just up because it's easy to be like, oh, up. that's not for me. I, maybe I'm embarrassed because my girlfriend's killing it and I just got pummeled or like. Yeah, all that. And what a humiliating and like. Um, 
with their family. But brilliant, though, like brilliantly humiliating. You learn humility through that process. I mean, that's surfing is why I got the word beginner tattooed on my arm because everybody out there who's my age is crushing it in the water. And I'm this guy, beginner. But because I'm a beginner, I don't know what a good day and a bad day is. I just know I'm in the water. I'm having a blast. So I never wanted to forget that. So I got beginner tattooed on my arm. So I'm sitting out there in the water with all these macho dudes. I can show them my macho tattoo that's like, hey, guess what? <laughs> beginner. I suck. I'm a beginner, but you know what? I'm having a blast. So you, it's none of my business what you think of me. Right. It's also like, oh, I don't care if they're judging me because, oh, it's okay because I'm a beginner. So I'm not going to judge myself because I'm not as good as them because I'm a beginner here. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember getting back in the car. We, we surfed on Christmas morning, which was like California. That's what you can do, right? So we surfed on Christmas morning, I got back in the car, and I'm asking Tristan and her family, I was like, do you guys ever feel like you want to throw up after you surf? <laughs> they're like, Just no. Like, <laughs> I mean, I would get tossed. I mean, you puked in the water several times. I've seen you. Oh, that's right. Wait, you <laughs> don't, yeah. don't eat. Yeah. And then go surfing. And then surfing. <laughs> so anyway, I would meet people like this who would champion new ways of being and a new lifestyle for me both in yoga and in surf and in diet. And in uh, and it, I just started to become transformed. And then also because of the things I wanted to do with my time, I wanted to be healthier. I wanted to be happier. I didn't want to, I wanted to have mastery over my nervous system because when I was drinking too much coffee and smoking cigarettes, I would have these panic attacks and freak outs and I'd smash things because I didn't know how to communicate or control myself. So I wanted to I wanted yeah. to beat that. Wait, and I think, yeah, I was talking about that too. Like to be on stage or to be in an interview or to be in the recording studio, wherever you are, that you're doing these big parts of your job that are epic, but also can bring up nerves or that then too, then that the things you're putting in your body are affecting you. Or even yeah. today you offered me coffee and I was like, I would love to have coffee and I will take sips, which I did. But I'm like, I know I, cause I need to be centered. I need to be more calm. And if I have coffee, which I have that insight. And so then were you then like, oh, for me to be doing my job better. Yeah. My dream, my, yeah. which is also my job. That I need to change. How can I do yeah. that? Yep. So I started, I stopped eating fast food. I mean, I was living on 7-Eleven hot dogs and yeah. Jack in the Box. I do remember when I first came into work with you, what your rider <laughs> I don't even remember what it was. I it was don't, like peanut well, butter and jelly. Yeah, and I beer. do. And I even remember the first time I came to your house when I, that it was like your entire pantry was like Jif peanut, like yeah. brought home from tour. And yeah, like, <laughs> it was all this stuff from the dressing room. It was like, yeah, like. My pantry looked like 7-Eleven. It was Cheez-Its, Honey yeah. Bears, peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> it was like, I mean, like hundred jars of Jif peanut butter. Cases yes, of you. <laughs> <laughs> and then wow has that shifted because then time. we ended up going back on the road with dehydrator dehydrator spiralizer spiralizer juicer vitamix uh, had coolers to carry raw foods around <laughs> i mean it was kind of a pain in the ass at first but it it wasn't because i it was making me feel so good right and that's, I think, too, that sometimes people can, they don't, it can be hard to change whatever it's your life, whether it's what you're eating or, you know, oh, I need to start, start taking care of myself. I don't have time for exercise or I don't have to wake up to do it or whatever. But then once you start doing it and you feel the results, then it becomes. Yeah. Okay. So as you can tell, Jason and I had a great time talking, <laughs> weren't really paying attention to the time, which is the best 
time, right? Uh, so the conversation got interrupted by one of his cats, and we decided to then start a new episode. You can dive right into that episode right now or come back to it at your leisure. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. I'm going to have new episodes coming out every week. Um, rate the podcast. And as a special fun thing, if you rate it, screenshot your review, email it to me at yourjoyologist at yourjoyologist.com. Every week, I'm going to pick one person from the submitted reviews to win an awesome box of goodies from my product shop. If you didn't know, I have an affirmation-based, I kind of call it a kick-ass affirmation-based product line because in some of them, there are some choice words. <laughs> but some messages are very sweet and some others are very to the point. So send me that message and you can go check out anything from my products, blogs, videos at yourjoyologist.com. Follow me at yourjoyologist on Instagram. The product line is at yourjoyologistshop. Thanks again for listening. and. I hope you really enjoyed the conversation and took some of what we were saying to heart and can see how to apply it in your own life. And ask yourself right now, what are you claiming for yourself right here, right now? <laughs>